Do you dread tax time because you haven't saved enough for taxes? Are you totally confused and lost about your business finances? Do you worry that you'll never be able to retire or save for your kid's college education? If you bury your head in the sand because you think you'll never be a money person, I want to let you in on a huge secret. All you need to manage your private practice finances are a simple series of skills that you can learn. After all, you already did the hard work of graduating from college, becoming a therapist, and starting your private practice. Hi, I'm Lindsay Bonham. I'm a therapist turned money coach and the creator of Money Skills for Therapists. I've helped hundreds of therapists just like you develop peace of mind about their money. I invite you to watch my free masterclass where I teach my four-step framework to get your business finances totally in order. In the masterclass, I cover the three biggest mistakes that therapists make that keep them from getting clarity on their private practice finances, the secret that most accountants don't want you to know, and why working with your mindset and emotions is essential to changing your patterns with money. This masterclass is for therapists and health practitioners who are running or about to start a private practice. It is the first step in learning about my signature course, Money Skills for Therapists. Register today with the link in the show notes to take the first step to go from money confusion, anxiety, and shame to feeling clear and empowered about your money. I look forward to supporting you. Having a conversation about the higher fees or what someone can't afford to pay is is difficult when someone's coming in saying, I'm looking for help here and looking for therapy. And how do you have that money conversation as part of the initial clinical conversation and continue to work with that in the relationship? Welcome to the Money Skills for Therapists podcast, where we answer this question, how can therapists and health practitioners go from money shame and confusion to feeling calm and confident about their finances and get money really working for them in both their private practice and their lives? I'm your host, Lindsay Bonham, therapist turned money coach and creator of the course Money Skills for Therapists. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. So today's guest is a money skills graduate, Dr. Celeste Pietruza, who is a licensed clinical psychologist in private practice and a supervisor at the Green Clinic in Brooklyn, New York. Today, Celeste and I talk about class. Um, We talk about her experience with being first generation, uh, being the first one in her family, her working class family to get a PhD. We talked about her experiences with going through that PhD program, having working class background. Uh, We talked about what challenges come up for the supervisees that she has now, where they really struggle around money, and about just this pervasive lack of education, even in higher learning around money, uh, the taboo around money, and who that serves. If you are first generation, or if you're like me and you're kind of second generation, like working class family, one or one and a half generations ago, I think you're going to really appreciate this conversation today. We get into some of the the gaps that can exist when we have working class backgrounds and then move into more of this kind of emotional labor and academic spaces and how some of the things that our parents teach us that worked for them in their situations don't work for us anymore. Here's my conversation with Dr. Celeste Pietruza. So Celeste, welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's great to be here with you, Lindsay. Yeah, it's great to be with you too. So Celeste, you took money skills. What's our timeline now? Like 
one year or two years ago? It's, um, I mean, I believe I began in 2020 and then completed in 2021. Okay. So even longer than that. Okay. And you took money skills right at the beginning of kind of stepping into practice. Am I correct about that? Yes. I was finishing up my postdoc and moving into private practice. Um, I was at doing my postdoc at a group practice where I supervise now and feeling a lot of anxiety, actually, even with all of the training and preparation that I had about making this move from being pre-licensed as a psychologist um, in New York State to getting everything together, passing the um, licensing exam and making this uh, transition. And so Money Skills for Therapists laid the groundwork that got all my bank account set up. It it felt really good to have that in place. Like even when I was like, I'm not sure yeah. how this is going to work, yeah. if this is going to work, but just trusting the process and the steps. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I feel when you're talking like I like I see you very much as like a student, like you're somebody who's really like a learner or like, and I, I, it sounds to me like you kind of just like put money skills, like into your educational process as part of like stepping into practice, you, you added it to your curriculum. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, I wish I had something like this along the way in graduate school. In actual graduate school. Yes. I think about it as, yeah, as, as a class that I, that I needed for licensure. Right. Right. So going back then, like thinking kind of before your time in money skills, like you've done a lot of work on this, but I'm curious, Celeste, thinking about your, your background, how did that influence your relationship with money before you took money skills and and became a supervisor as you are now? So uh, neither of my parents, neither my mom or nor my dad went to college. And so my dad was a union sheet metal worker and my mother helped run his business of contracting too. Mm. And so uh, they were really detail oriented about money. And yet in terms of uh, me going to college and having very different challenges that they did too, and especially with a graduate education too, going to the PhD uh, level right. and student debt too. Yeah. It was a new kind of structure. I mean, whereas in the union, once you get to journeyman, start making a wage, you can make a specific wage and begin at 21. The training process um, with undergraduates over uh, 10 years, right. really, um, to, yes. to get to the PhD level. And I was coming out as an, as an adult and yet at the same time feeling what do I do now too? Uh, And made it this way and feeling like a very unique set of challenges as a Mm. a first generation college student. Yeah. 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 That first generation experience. Cause you, you were experiencing and having to navigate something financially that your parents had never done before. And, and I'm curious, Celeste, like, did they want that for you? Like, was that part of the narrative growing up? Okay. So they wanted you to get that post-secondary education. Yeah. I feel really fortunate. Um, It was something that they encouraged um, my brother and sibling and I, and Mm -hmm. we all did get terminal degrees in our respective fields too as well. And so it was something, I mean, the idea was you go to school and get an education so you don't have to work as hard as we did. And there's something about that that's um, on the one hand um, in that investment of their time and labor, care and energy that's very empowering. And also at the same time, and we also have to work hard in a in a different way too right. that didn't expect or mentalize. Yeah. Like I'm your PhD, I'm guessing was not like super laid back and uh, it was not a life of leisure. I would guess. I was talking with someone who was not familiar with the process and said, wait, you did an externship. 
And then you did an internship, a full year internship before your PhD. And then you only then you had to write a dissertation and to have mm-hmm. the PhD. And that was how the training process went. And so it did feel like there were constant uh, deadlines and things to meet on a, a small stipend too um, as well. Right. Yeah. Like it's a, a different type of labor that you're having to do. And so I'm curious then, Celeste, like coming from that experience of of being first generation, what was your relationship with money like going back a few years ago before you really started working on this? Or maybe you'd already done some work at that time. I'm not sure. Oh, I was start. Well, I had to dig in. I mean, like I had gotten to the the point where it was really time. I mean, I um, kind of money avoidance is what I'll call it. Um, had come to a crisis point. Like my idea was, okay, I will work to make sure I have enough for what I need and what I, what I want too. And yet at the same time, um, I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, mm. I mean, maybe, maybe we don't ever, but how I wasn't thinking and planning um, for this future too in private practice, because everywhere way along the way in the PhD program, we were told, don't think about that stuff until you get there. There's enough to think about now. Or sometimes we'd be told things that were for far later, really early when they didn't quite stick. Right, okay. I remember one of the first presentations in graduate school was about how to file your dissertation with the <laughs> library. And like, it's like day one in orientation. Right. And, right. And They're like, like, this is important. File this away for several years in your brain. But don't think about how you're actually going to make money when you're out of here. That's too much to think about. Right. That was, yeah, that was not addressed. I mean, maybe I think there was maybe a panel once along the way, a colloquium of people in private practice, but it was also very early, like maybe first or second year of graduate school. And so it was nice to see that it was possible and see some uh, role models and people to identify with. And yet at the same time, the absorption and capacity to say, okay, like, here's what you do. Here's the, um, like your course, the money nuts and bolts too. Mm -hmm. That was what was not there too, at least in any kind of formalized structured way. Right. Yeah. 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 So Celeste, then I'm curious for you emotionally, what was your relationship with money like? Like I'm hearing there was avoidance. Mm-hmm. What what was in the mix there? Oh, overwhelm, um, kind of putting a, an ostrich, putting my head in the sand is the, the image that comes to mind. Like it'll be okay. Just, and sometimes, um, and maybe this was part of uh, the working class background in my family was just work more. Like mm-hmm. when in doubt, why more work to the problem? Um, you know, it's what I saw my father doing it. It worked out in many ways for our family. And yet uh, I learned that is not always the answer. <laughs> work harder. I working smarter was <laughs> not something I really understood um, how to do and I'm still learning along the way to um, what that means, particularly in the psychology profession too, where I do feel a pull and a call to this mm-hmm. work, sometimes do want to do more um, and yet have had to also have the process of learning my own limits too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause when you mentioned like that work harder narrative, it occurs to me like that, that is often the solution when you are working class, in, unless you actually have some sort of, you know, pathway up, you know, unless you can make it into management or whatever, but that's such a small group compared to the folks who are doing the actual work. That's the tool you have, right? Is you can work more because even if you get a raise, it's not going to be the kind of raise that we can get as therapists, right? Like it's just a totally different like wage metric that we're talking about there or scale. And so that occurs to me is like, you're given the advice or you're, you've absorbed the strategy that 
was the strategy that was available to your dad and it did work for your dad, but it doesn't actually apply to the work that you do in the same way. Um, no, I mean, uh, if people often think this is an exaggeration, um, but my father would wake up sometimes 4 a.m. And I mean, he'd stop back in uh, to eat quickly, but then I mean, it would be 10, 11 midnight some nights too as well. And there wasn't this concept of uh, the the weekend either, because as he said, there's always more work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's more work to be done, right? Like, and something um, he told me once, and I, I've learned this now as a positive lesson, but at the time as a kid, I felt this pang. He said, life is maintenance and maintenance is life. <laughs> yeah. I could see that. And on the one hand, it's, it's, is important for the yeah. daily actions and things yes. I have to do. And yet it also, as a kid, I heard that it's like, wait, really? Is that all that is like, can there be a vacation? Well, and like, that's so interesting. I mean, it makes me think about this summer, my partner and I had a backyard cottage built in our backyard. And sometimes we'll say, oh yeah, we built a backyard cottage. And it's like, oh no, no, we didn't build it. <laughs> we didn't build it. We looked out the window at people working exceptionally hard working to build it with their hands, with skills that I 0% have. And something that I thought about sometimes as I walked was, especially when we had to like hire a heavy road crew of like guys with like literal jackhammers, you know, like experiencing like what is really a terrible workplace from a health perspective, like absorbing these fumes and just like rattling their organs. Like sometimes I would look at them and just like visualize their organs shaking in their bodies from the, the physical work they were doing to like destroy something on my property so they could fix it. And it just gave me this deeper appreciation for how much when you are really working with your body, which is what a lot of folks working class, that's what you're told to do. That's what you have to do. You have to put your emotions and physical sensations aside. You have to dissociate. There's no way that those guys are not dissociating in order to be able to physically do what they do. And from a, like, if I think about an IFS perspective, like a parts perspective, like that is managers. They have manager parts galore that are like making it so it's like, nope, you do the work and like, yep, your knee hurts and it's been hurting for three weeks, but you can't go to the doctor right now because you've got this contract to finish. And so you just like, you put it down, you manage, you manage, you manage, you manage. And like some of those things that I think we might be able to have more access to in the kind of work that we do of just like being present and slowing down and feeling it. It's just like that kind of manual working class work is not conducive to really being like present and like the more emotional parts of life. Like, I'm curious about your thoughts about that. I really appreciate how you described and phrased that um, because that does describe in this very empathic way the ethos that I grew up with too. Like there, there isn't time for emotions uh, too. And I, I realize I began my Psychology Today profile begins with a sentence similar to like there may not feel like there's time in life to yes. voice complex um, feelings and emotions, and that. Um, that aspect too of pushing it aside to continue really deeply resonates um, to my, my my father had a lot of trauma and work was a way of it helped him heal I believe in some ways and yes. it also put aside and walled off some yes. other forms of intergenerational healing too as well totally yeah I mean it, it makes me think about my my grandfather's I feel like my my family. Actually, that's not true. My my father is not college educated. My mother is community college educated, like went into professional programs. But you're you're what you're describing is very much how my grandfathers both live their lives. It's like you work hard, work is good. When you are working, it is good. You are providing for your family, that is good. But like my one grandfather would like work hard and then like go drink with the boys all night because he had like done what he's supposed to do. He had provided 
And so he wasn't going to like show up and hang out with his family. Like he needed to go drink and he had a lot of trauma that I'm sure he was also avoiding at the end of the day. And so, it, yeah, there is, it's a different ethos than I think what obviously than the kind of work that we've moved into and the kind of lives that we're able to live. And at the same time, being mostly now seeing clients one-on-one and supervising too, I do run some uh, groups as well and a little bit of teaching, but most of my work is one-on-one with clients. Um, Mm -hmm. I do feel things um, and have the experiences emotionally in my body and how um, the experiences with my clients are things that do take time to to process and make space for with myself and Mm. other relationships um, in my life too. And to what I've learned through a lot of self-compassion work and things that um, I uh, do with my clients too is how to give those grace. Because I think what growing up and seeing the men in my family work that way and the women in my family too took on a lot of hard physical labor tasks too. My mother is around 70 years old Mm -hmm. and she chainsaws things. And the things that she does, she has four pull-ups every morning. That's amazing. I could do zero pull-ups at this moment, I'm quite sure. Oh, I think I've, uh, even at my fittest and youngest, I couldn't do the flexed arm hang. I'll do it. I'll hold on. To right, it right. Like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. You can cling, but uh, not pulling up. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, this is the, 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 um, people I grew up with too. And there's some ways too of the sensitivity to how to be mindful of my own sensitivities and gifts and value them equally Mm, and uh, differently too is something that I work on too. And I think it has been something that my uh, family more broadly has come to recognize as an asset too, because it was so different. I mean, I don't think I was thinking about this the other day and I didn't know anyone when I was growing up who um, volunteered or elected to go to therapy or, and if so, they didn't speak about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 If I think about my family, which again, I think is one generation removed, but still has a lot of this trickle down stuff. uh, That's still the case in my family. (laughs) I think I'm the only one. Yeah. I shouldn't say that if I like go extended, but certainly it, it is amazing how much that mindset can persevere generation to generation of just kind of like, well, I think I think now the ethos in my family is more like, well, it's good that other people do it, but like, I don't need it. But it's good that other people have it. Even when my grandmother went for therapy because uh, my grandfather was basically failing and going to die and she had all this stress and she was carrying so much stuff. She saw the therapist once and she was like, well, that's good. Like, and the therapist wanted her to come back and she was very surprised because she was like, well, what is there to talk about? We just talked, <laughs> you know? So just like this idea of like, well, I, I did therapy. I did the thing. I talked about it. Now I'm going to go back and like, you know, you know, my grandmother, similar to what you're talking with my mom, like this very, even when she was retired, this very rigid, like chore routine and like things would happen annually at certain times, like work, 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 work. Like even every day was work well into retirement. And I'm thinking, as you say that about your grandmother, putting it on this checklist and checking it off too, and how much of the acculturation um, there is in, in to do with and to therapy too, what it means to be in a culture of therapy mm-hmm. as well, and having a sense of its rhythms, a sense of even uh, uh, routine, self-care routine too. Yeah. I'm thinking about how clients too may come in un- unaware of what is this people who are in therapy for the first time That's or true. Um, haven't known anyone in therapy. Like, yeah. wait, um, I have to do this every week. Why? <laughs> right? <laughs> like, and here we are saying, just, just trust us. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. That, and they're like, who are you? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
I like to start, I mean, and like, no, you don't have to um, immediately trust me just because I'm a, a therapist. I mean, I know that that's a message too that people get to. It may take time to build that relationship and that mm-hmm. groundwork and how we frame and talk about it too as well. And I'm thinking too about even the culture of training as a therapist, which is something that I had an earlier career before going back to graduate school too. And so that was different for me to come into um, psychology graduate school training. I guess I have to re-experience some things and really grapple with a lot of differences or things that I didn't know too. Hmm. And can you you say more about what those looked like or some examples of that? There's a lot of discussion of like, we as therapists know this. And I'm like, this is my first year in a graduate program. I did not study psychology yeah. and I was a therapist before this. I'd done a lot of crisis work and yes. um, community crisis work too. Mm. And so asking for clarification on on those things too. And like how to not know without um, any kind of judgment because there was an idea um, being raised and going going to school and going to public school. You could think there's right ways to do things, quote unquote, mm. um, and answers. Like that's how you're a good student along the way. And even it comes so almost naturally now to say, oh, there's no right or wrong here too, that those embedded ideas. I mean, when you are coming from a trades and crafts person type background, mm-hmm. right? That's what my mom would say. What do you, what do you mean? There's no right or wrong. If you put <laughs> The, the table on wrong, it's going to fall down. Yeah, like, yeah, have, there is a right and wrong in the material world. Mm-hmm. If you and build so, the bridge wrong, it's going to be wrong. It's going to fall apart. That's very wrong. Yeah. 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 And I mean, that makes me curious, Celeste, like in your experience, do you think, were you encountering in that any kind of like, I don't even know the, the language for this, but some sort of like class disconnect or an assumption about who you were and what you had experienced before getting to this point that was not accurate in your case? Mm-hmm. Yes. And I had the fortunate experience of having some other um, graduate students and colleagues to connect with about that too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think another one was the idea with money issues is don't worry about it. You're going to be fine, which maybe reinforced this feeling I already had too, um, too, was out of this place of unknown fear. I was already ostriching it a, sure. a bit. And then this was being felt like misvalidated in a way too. Like um, that wasn't the message that I grew up with. And definitely, I mean, sometimes I had um, done that when I was much younger. Don't not worry about it. I'll be fine. And it wasn't. It really mm-hmm. wasn't. Right. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. Because the assumption that don't worry about it, it will be fine. The unspoken part, I think there is that there are safety nets. Like your your parents can swoop in and help or you can get a job through this connection. Like there's a lot of, I think, assumptions there that would make someone fine that are not accurate if you're not actually in like a connected middle-class, upper-class situation. I remember one colleague or graduate student um, along with me saying, your parents don't give you an allowance, right? And I, I was thinking, I'm 30 years old, no. And also what, right? Like, yeah. and, and um, they did, I mean, they did when I was a kid. Um, sure. and, yeah, yeah. and yet she was like, not even like $500 a month. And my mind at that moment um, was just, I just realized, cause I didn't see her as someone particularly wealthy even. And yet it was a, that felt like a market class difference. Um, yes, there for sure. It was like the idea even, um, and it's 
common and the usual parents can support and help mm-hmm. and children and adult children that they they will and do and that wasn't an idea it was if you needed it of course we'll be there the the sense of like really making sure that we took care of ourselves and um knew how to do that um mm. was so ingrained in me and um at a very young age yeah 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 so now celeste as a supervisor you know working with clinicians who are pre-licensed folks coming into the field i'm curious like what do you see your supervisees struggling with as they're, you know, building their practices and, and working with clients when it comes to, you know, these pieces that we're talking about? The first one is fee setting and discussions around money um, and the emotions that they bring up for um, clinicians too, as well. And so in my training experience, I first worked at a, a, the Duquesne University Psychology Clinic, and it was a community clinic that had a sliding scale. And at the time, I believed the most that we ever charged for the fee was forty dollars. Okay. Then um, at the Green Clinic, where in Brooklyn, where I did my postdoc, um, the sliding scale ranges um, with a high end of uh, two twenty five, which is the usual and customary for the zip code mm. the clinic is in, and so. Um, the supervisor trainees, I mean, people would come in at a $40 or $60 sliding scale, um, $150 or $225. And okay. um, those are very different situations, too, as well. And how to have those discussions and take that into account. How green works is the higher fees help subsidize and make it possible for right. um, yes. trainees to see people in mm. the community don't have insurance or out of network benefits in there. And yet having a conversation about um, the higher fees or what um, someone can't afford to pay is, is difficult when someone's coming in saying, I'm looking for help here mm-hmm. and I'm looking for therapy. Mm-hmm. And how, how do you have that money conversation as part of the initial um, clinical conversation and continue to work with that in the relationship, um, especially if you haven't had that experience or that discussion. And I feel really fortunate. We have didactics at Green and um, a lot of support and uh, process around that aspect of training too. And yet, um, you know, it's something that uh, at this point, you know, I I still have work to do around around the emotions that come mm-hmm. up um, with yeah. it. Yeah, I was going to say, like, what are some of those emotions that come up for your your supervisees, or that you still notice coming up in yourself? around those conversations? So uh, supervisees, I hear of anxiety and fear too, um, as well, uh, guilt, shame too. Some of the more difficult ones are we uh, frustration too, because when having a discussion um, about money can bring up so much else and it's hard to know, uh, you know, what are someone's real assets and aspects of their of their life too that feed into the full picture too as well and so and I relate to I mean I still feel um the call it we have some class shame too around mm-hmm. those differences and and fears of loss or rupture too in the relationship are, right. are quite common right. um like if you yeah. do the conversation wrong you could ruin this relationship or lose good parts of it too i definitely is the um the aspect that comes up too like the how to keep money intertwined and see it as a part of um social and relational exchange mm-hmm. rather than i mean it can be this idea i mean 
comes in art too, as well. Other factors of life, like, oh, here's something that where money is separate. Here's the art, here's the money, here's the therapy, here's the the money. And um, I think this is in lots of cultural aspects too, the ideas about money being dirty in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Right, right. We don't want to contaminate the relationship with money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And like, what a, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to hear that there is training in the the place that you work, but I'm thinking in general, like what a setup in a way, right. Where it's like, you know, when we are providing service, whether it's within a larger framework where we have to help somebody figure out what fee, where they should land, or whether it's, in, we're in private practice and then it's just us by ourselves trying to figure out, okay, like what, what am I offering? How, how do I know how, what to ask? Like, how do I determine what somebody, what sliding scale somebody you know, deserves to access, I'm putting this in quotations, um, like what a loaded, heavy topic to have to deal with when we have no training on it. Right. Well, and again, to go back to, we only know what we know. We can't know what we don't know until yeah. we yeah. come into encounter it too, is, um, you know, when I moved from Pittsburgh to Brooklyn, I mean, the, the sense of the disparity and the difference between that. I mean, I purchased a house in, in Pittsburgh in graduate school for $65,000, ready to move in, four bedrooms wow. in the city wow. limits, could walk to the campus. Um, wow. And that's not the case there You're now. You're my mind. Okay, yeah. And, so that was a little while ago. And well, it's 10 years though. Yeah, not, that's not that long. long. Pittsburgh's still affordable. I'll put in a plug for Pittsburgh any day. Um, Pittsburgh. <laughs> you can get a house for not 65000 but not also 6 million. Yeah. Under, under 300, the nice house um, in the city and, and yeah. And this, and then coming to New York um, to where, I mean, the studio apartment, um, basic one room between 300 and 600 thousand dollars minimum um for mm. studio is a very different kind of experience and you know the kind the money that people make is a lot more and sometimes a lot less yeah. Yeah. too as well and so i even just knowing that as a cultural monetary context took some time to get oriented to because my first response is i i'm not even licensed i can't charge people 225 dollars i remember those um, conversations and now it's very, very different. Like, I mean, that feels um, uh, right. I mean, it's and um, even it's possible to charge more than mm-hmm. that too, as well for the the service and quality service too. And yet, I mean, I I had the first idea that oh, there's no one who's going to be able to afford that. I'll see no clients. Um, it was kind of an all or nothing thinking yes. about it, um, and it was coming from a place of fear and insecurity myself too. And that's a hard way to begin and set off mm-hmm. on one's professional foot when there's yeah. all this other training too, and all this other conversation around so many topics and some of the other hardest topics of, in life, you know, grief, um, mm-hmm. birth, um, death, uh, sexuality, uh, trauma, abuse too, talking about all the uh, incarceration, um, mm-hmm. talking about all these hard things. And yet somehow, I mean, in at least in graduate school, I didn't have a class where we talked about mm-hmm. class or money. And now at this point, I'm amazed because it is something that people's um, people experience um, mm-hmm. uh, extreme distress over and we're using every day um, in our life. I mean, I think that we are hard pressed to find a clinician who hasn't had a class about um, eating and food and mm-hmm. um, and yeah. uh, 
problems with um, eating disorders too. And yet money, oh, that's not our area, um, seems uh, like it's engaging in the same um, yeah. uh, avoidance. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that really speaks to just how powerful that taboo is around money right? It's like these other things, at least we know we're supposed to talk about them. We're like, well, even if it's uncomfortable, we will like learn how to talk about sexuality with our clients. But it's like money, as you say, can still be perceived as this like dirty, separate, let's not bring it into the therapeutic relationship. Even though, as you say, every day, every day people eat and every day they need to either make money and or spend money uh, in order to just like survive in the world, right? It's a non-negotiable. It's not even like an optional uh, interest topic, that might apply. It like literally applies to every single person that we see, as well as all of us as individuals. And yet it's not taught, not even that it's not taught robustly. It's just not taught, period. Yeah. I mean, I wrote a dissertation on kink and BDSM at a Catholic university, uh, which had its challenges. And yet the money stuff writ large um, yes. has been, had more silences, more gaps to, um, in ongoing to, um, than that experience. Um, yeah. And, and I wonder about what might be possible um, in terms of a new generation of clinicians in thinking forward and trying to build uh, some of this education into our discussions and training processes in a much less abstract way too. I mean, that is maybe what I bring from my background as well. And what I really appreciated about your course too, is the the nuts and bolts are also emotional pieces too. And having that foundation through the course and work um, allowed me to feel like a more confident, grounded clinician. It, it, even s- simple things like how I set up my bank accounts, mm-hmm. which you walked us through, even when they didn't have any money in them. Right. Yes. <laughs> so, like, I, I like I just started my private practice account, and I was like, okay, I'm just I trust and trust you, so I'm going to get four bank accounts, even though only one of them has a balance, and <laughs> let's see how this goes. <laughs> Yes, yes. And something about that, you know, Celeste, this is where I was saying in the beginning too, like you have, you're like, you're just such a student, right? Like, you know how to learn. Cause I think that's something that sometimes folks struggle with when they think about doing this work before practicing, right? Like before being in private practices, they're like, well, I want to wait until I'm making money. Otherwise there's nothing to do, but there's so much to learn before you do, right? And if we don't learn before we do, we end up all of this, like, you know, there was a visual that came to me as you were talking a few minutes ago of like, kind of like pulling through the muck. It's like, we're like all of this money, you know, cultural messages, class messages, personal experiences, like all of it, all of it, all of it. We're trying to kind of like sort through and make movement. And if we don't learn about these things early on, we are going to end up creating like practices and systems and relationships with our clients where all this money muckiness is like very much defining it. Whereas you like trusted the process, did it anyways, even though there was literally no money. (laughs) And in doing so, you built something that worked before it was even happening. Well, I found that making those bank accounts was a doing and was a future oriented Mm, effort too in that way that it was, it was also an experience of seeing that I had agency in building that future too. And so I, and that was really, that felt so empowering too, is to take the actions that are possible in the moment of learning and while they're possible, and then just continue to build on it. And so I just, uh, 
I don't have the vision for this yet, but I could see a group of clinicians or people coming together yeah. in a way to say, like, how can we really keep this as a core part of um, curriculum and going forward? I mean, you know, I, again, I outside my uh, field of practice, but I even wonder about that too. I mean, how class issues come into other forms of education before we get there in public school. There's a lot of classes about many many topics and even in all of the calculus algebra even economics which you think covers money stuff economics i took um did not talk about how do you invest your money or how do you structure needs and wants that kind of foundation could then help um, us prepare as the emotional side of what it means to plan for particular goals or futures or what happens when you have a crisis or things go awry too and how does money move between mm. people and family members? And then what emotions come up around the ties that money binds too. Yeah. And there's ways that we could work across fields for this. Yeah. Like it's just, as you're saying it, you know, it's just really sinking into me, like what a massive omission it is in our education. Cause there's so much there. And, you know, it makes me curious, Celeste, like of your perspective, do you think there's a reason we're not taught it? Like, is it is the taboo the full reason? Is there deeper reasons like or other reasons? What do you think? I believe it benefits power and the the current system too to keep yes. class divisions yes. too as well. Even if that's never said um, explicitly, I believe what we leave out. Um, you know, we can see this with race and curriculum too. Um, how a story is told and what's not told perpetuates the the things that are in the status quo and power mm -hmm. um because then it's not uh, it seems like it's less possible to say oh well wait look at that there yeah yeah if yeah yeah students are empowered with mm -hmm. um, knowledge that can call it into uh question um engage with it and um and have an access point for change yeah yeah it's like the system perpetuates itself through education yeah Okay. So for folks who are listening and maybe folks who are listening and like relating and they're like, this is so much like my story and, and my experiences. I'm I'm curious, Celeste, or for folks who are maybe stepping into private practice, like what would you suggest as a starting point? Where do they go if they're feeling like all of these things are, they're ostriching and all of these things are stacked against them? Like what is a starting place to start to build a, a more empowered relationship with money, get where they want to go? I really feel like I started with money skills for therapists. So I have to lay that out there. It was so foundational in getting to this discussion today. But in addition to that, um, to I really start talking um, yeah. to others about it. I mean, like that's the I believe most important aspect there is begin to have the conversations with money, with supervisors, with colleagues, with friends. Um, with family, see how it feels too, and what's possible to um, to find that edge, I'll say, and and notice what kind of emotions come up um, around it. Yeah, start to have, bring awareness and money awareness into one's one's psyche, and as much as possible in a non judgmental way, because so much judgment can come up around it, or to notice the judgments too. Mm -hmm. um, I found that so helpful in my clinical practice really to make that explicit, whether it's like keeping a log and writing it down and really looking at it and saying, now I believe that. Does it necessarily mean that it's true? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like, you know, I'm, I'm hearing there like a, a being with a starting to create some distance because these stories are running in our minds, whether we're vocalizing them or not. 
So if we start to externalize them, whether that's to like a journal or talking to your best friend or having a conversation, asking your mom some questions about money, then we're actually putting those things out loud and starting to create the opportunity for some like distance and for maybe those to start to be shifted or at least questioned or softened. Because, uh, you know, they're so powerful, the stories that we carry and the experiences that we have. And yet so often we never fully vocalize and actually put words to the thoughts that are bouncing around our heads all the time about money. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Celeste. It was wonderful talking to you today. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks. It's been great too. And Celeste, before we finish up, is there anywhere you'd want to direct folks who are listening to the podcast, any resources or neat things you'd like to share with them? So for anyone in the New York City area, um, I uh, like to put out a plug for a green clinic in Brooklyn. It's a community-based, uh, psychodynamically um, oriented training clinic and center too that provides affordable and sliding scale psychotherapy, individuals, couples, children, um, and adolescents, um, as well as some options for art therapy with a mission to uh, help prepare clinicians and training for their future careers, as well as mm. to provide um, services to the broader community. And so the website's at www.greenclinic, um, all one word, G-R-E-E-N-E, clinic.com. Mm. Um, Green like the name. Great. Thank you, Celeste. Thank you. I really appreciated Celeste coming on the podcast today and talking about her experiences uh, and also talking about, you know, just this pervasive lack of education about money and, you know, thinking about class and who does learn about money, who's assumed that they're going to have money and should know how to manage it, who doesn't. And it just makes me feel very grateful that, you know, Celeste and I'm sure other wonderful supervisors out there are at least starting to have these conversations about money with their supervisees, you know, pre-licensed. So folks are getting this support earlier in their professional journeys. I mean, the ideal obviously is that we would be getting financial education at home when our kids, like when we're four years old and then in grade two and in grade five and all the way through, maybe this will be my next career. Uh, we'll be uh, getting financial education into public schools so that kids actually have literacy um, and skills around money from the very start. That would be the dream. But, you know, I think the second best is getting it into our professional education, you know, and making influence uh, or having positive influence on the therapists who are who are coming up and who are stepping into this space and can benefit from learning the things that some of us, some of you listening, have already learned and started to um, put into play around your relationship with money. If you can impart some of those things to someone who's newer in their journey, uh, it's an amazing gift. It's going to save them a lot of headache and pain. And as Celeste mentioned, she took money skills before she even started her practice. And that's something that I often suggest to folks if it's possible. Doing money skills before you even start your practice, as we talked about, lets you set yourself up for success before you even have money to manage. You get to do the learning before you're actually um, do the learning. But as she said, also like putting things in place, like building out a system before you've already had your relationship with money and your negative stories around money impact the way that you shape your practice. That's a beautiful thing. But of course, always the second best thing is that we learn from exactly where we are today. So if you're listening and you feel like there's so much to learn about money and you've set things up wrong um, and you're ostriching like Celeste. I love her suggestion of just start having conversations with folks around you. You know that Money Skills for Therapists exists and that support is there for you as well. And I would love to help you in this work. It's powerful talking about money 
uh, that lack of education has a huge impact on us and anything we can do to start to break the silence and build skills and help the people around us build skills is powerful. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, you can find me at money nuts and bolts. Uh, and if you're enjoying the podcast, please jump over to Apple podcasts and leave a review. It is the best way for folks to find us. Thanks for listening today. <laughs>